Okay, well, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 6. Therefore, always being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Just, I want to look at two things here in this text. First of all, Paul has this grasp of eternity. He has this idea that he is more than just a, a physical being. That he is in a body and he is laboring on this earth. And in doing so, he, he sees things, he feels things, he touches things, he hears things. They relay back to his mind and his heart. He understands them. He, he is a sentient being. He is a man, a real man, a visible man in a real and visible world. And if, if he was any other way, he would, of course, have, have serious mental problems. We are real men, and we are in a real world. We communicate with that world, and it communicates to us through speech, through sound, visually, through touch. We know it's real. It's here in front of us. And that's a good thing, because as I said, if you weren't that way, you would be in great need of some sort of counseling. But the fact of the matter is, it's also a danger. Why is it a danger? Because what you see and feel and hear, it can begin to control you. You think that's the reality. You think that's what life's about, what you can see. And it's not at all. There is a far greater reality. The things of eternity, the things of the Spirit, And you need to understand, one of the things I realize as a preacher is that I study for myself, but I also study vicariously. And what do I mean by that? There are people may be in the church where I am preaching, and they're good men, love the Lord more than me. They're a mechanic. They've got to be at the shop at 6 in the morning to open it up. If they get 15 minutes of a good read in Scripture, then they're working 10, 12 hours a day just to make ends meet. It's hard for eternity to break into their life. Do you see that? And one of the jobs of of a preacher is to constantly be used of God so that eternity breaks into that man's life. That it's not about you just being a mechanic. It's not about you just paying the bills at home. It's not about you just raising children. You are eternal. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. Eternity awaits you, and you need to be reminded of that constantly. And there's this real struggle between what you can see and feel and hear and that reality out there that is only grasped by faith. It's more real than what you see here. But the only way you can hold on to it and live for it is by the Word of God. And if the Word of God isn't ever present in you, you're going to, well, eternity's going to become very blurry, and what's going to come into view is a world that is temporal, and you're going to give it all your attention. You know, 
um, a lot of people really don't know how to shoot a gun. A lot of people don't know how to shoot a bow. For example, when you look through um, the scope on a rifle, you have crosshairs. In the simplest form of rifle, you have crosshairs. And most people don't know how to shoot. They close one eye, and they're looking at those crosshairs. And the crosshairs, they're focused on the crosshairs, and then they try to put the crosshairs on a blurry target, and they don't shoot well. What you're looking at is not the crosshairs. You're looking at the target, and then those crosshairs pass over that target, and you shoot. What you focus on is the thing that's going to drive you. And you must focus on eternity. But to do that, it requires faith. And faith is impossible apart from the Word of God. We're going to look at reality. We're going to look at two realities that ought to control every man's life. They're realities that you must grab a hold of by faith, but they're nonetheless real, most real. You... And I, as men, we live between two days. The day that Christ hung before all men and the day that all men will stand and then bow before Christ. Those are the two days that ought to control our lives. The decisions that we make, everything we do, should be based on those two days. The day that Christ died for us and the day that we will stand before Christ. Everything else ought to be somewhat out of focus. Our eyes ought to be focused on those two days as men. As men. Paul says, therefore, always being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now, Paul's going to mention courage again. We live in a world in which we are the enemy. And you're probably going to see that more and more as the scenario plays itself out in America. That eventually, as the Jews in the Holocaust were the scapegoat, kill them, it's their fault. As the Christians during the time of Nero, kill them, it's their fault will probably return to that day. And you're going to need courage. But courage is impossible apart from faith. And faith is impossible apart from the Word of God. You say, Brother Paul, I came here for a men's meeting and all you keep talking about is the Scripture. Scripture makes men. That's all there is to it. Apart from maturing in your relationship with God, we can talk about family, we can talk about all kinds of things, but all the sins and all the areas of your life are mere symptoms of a greater problem. And that greater problem is a blurred vision of reality. And that reality being Christ's death for you and the day you will stand before the one who died for you. You've got to keep that in focus. And that is what gives us courage. Now he goes on in verse 7, he says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, there are so many ludicrous ideas about what faith is. The philosophical idea, and I've heard Christians repeat this, you know, faith is a leap in the dark. You've just got to believe. Don't ever leap into the dark. 
And don't believe just because, well, someone has that on the back of their bumper sticker or some, some bumper sticker on the back of their car. Faith is not a leap into the dark. That's absurd. Faith is a leap into the light. But then let me explain that because that's a little more than a cliche unless we understand what's going on. You see, let me give you an example. Angel Colmenares was a man who taught me a lot. He was a little Peruvian man about this big who I conservatively can estimate that his life was responsible for the planting of about 350 churches. In a time of war, he was a mentor to me. He was a friend of me. He was like a father to me. We spent hours going up the Andes, riding in the back of grain trucks and mules and, and everything else. And he was preaching years before I knew him in a place called Pacaypampa. And so there's this little unassuming man with little glasses, walks into this village and begins to preach. No one had ever heard his name. No one had ever heard such a message and there was a man who believed. So Angel went on his way. Well, the story goes that, and I knew that man also, that the, the town got together. They were kind of pagan Catholic, um, you know, mixture of eclectics, uh, you know, syncretistic uh, Catholicism. And they couldn't bear with the fact that this man had renounced that to believe the gospel. And so they were going to punish him, which was pour boiling water over him. And he, he said, go for it. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. I just, just think. So a little guy wanders into your village one day and preaches a message that none of you had ever heard. And then this one guy believes it. And he believes it so strongly that the next day, when he's threatened with having boiling water poured over his head and his body, he refuses to renounce what he's come to believe. Was that a leap into the dark? No, my friend, that wasn't a leap into the dark. You know what it was? It was the work of regeneration. It was the illuminating, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. While the gospel was being preached, the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, bore witness to that man that what he was hearing was true and worthy of dying for. Worthy of dying for. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is the result of a supernatural work of God in regeneration and illumination of the mind. Now, I, just, I want you to hold your place there for a moment. And I, I just want, I'm going to read something to you from, of course, Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, faith is the assurance of something you hope for. It's the conviction that something is real, but you've never seen it. Wow. Well, let's take that out of its context and just look at it by itself. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You know, I've always hoped to fly. I mean, unaided, just fly. You know. <laughs> Peter Pan, just pew. All right? And guess what? I wake up one morning and I have the assurance I can do that. 
I'm utterly convinced I can fly. So I climb up on a, a, you know, the Eiffel Tower or the, you know, some large skyscraper and, and I jump off and I die. But I'm doing exactly what this says. I have assurance of something I hope for and I've always hoped to fly. So I jump off and I die. Well, the conviction of things not seen. I have never seen anyone fly unaided by some mechanism. But I wake up one morning with a great conviction that it's possible. And I climb back up that tower and I Peter Pan right off the top of it. And I die. But I'm doing exactly what this says. I am doing this. So is faith absurd? Well, the problem is you just can't take a verse out of its context. And in this case, the context of all of Scripture. And what does all of Scripture tell us? Faith is absolutely impossible unless God has spoken. Faith is based on what God has said. Now, there's two ways you can go wrong with faith. Two ways you can go wrong. One is unbelief. When God says something and you don't believe it. When God gives a specific promise in Scripture and you do not believe it. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. When you do not believe that and you trust in your own works or your religion or whatever, you are in the realm of unbelief. You have refused to believe God. So that's one side of the error with regard to faith. But then there's another side, and what is it? Presumption. And it's just as dangerous. Presumption is when you believe something God never promised. For example, God's going to heal everybody all the time. God never promised that. Or God is going to make you a success and add no trouble to it. He, he never promised that. So see, those are. The, but what I want you to see is this. Second Corinthians does not function. Paul, Paul is a person who's been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been rejected by his culture. Absolutely everything. And how can he have courage? He has courage because of faith. But faith is impossible unless God has spoken. You can't have faith apart from the word of God. You simply cannot. You cannot. And so you say, well, he's a great man of faith. Well, let's, talk, let's find out just how much he stands upon the word of God. How much does he know of the word of God? And this goes back to what we've been saying this whole time. The only way to become men, godly men, men effective for the kingdom in this godless world is to walk by faith. And the only way to walk by faith is to know God's word, to know what God has promised, to know who God is. Paul says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And then again, verse 8, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now here's something. There's only a few reasons, they're big ones, but there's only a few reasons that I don't want to die. 
And if they weren't there, I'd say, take me home. And that's more fruitfulness to serve him. That's the first one. I mean, you know what adrenaline junkies are? I mean, you know, they jump out of airplanes or, or you get in the ring and you fight and you're scared. I mean, that guy is big and he doesn't like you. But there's something about it that every one of your nerves come alive. There's something about it. There's a wonder to it. There's a draw to it. Just being able to fight, to fight for him, to fight for something, to fight for something that endures, to be in a battle Some men have said that they've never felt more alive than in the midst of a battle. Other men, great fighters, have said, I've never felt more alive than when I was in the ring. I wish young men could feel that about the kingdom of heaven. So the reason why we want to stay in this body is to bear more fruit, to fight. Why? Because we just like fighting. We like being out of breath. We like being scared. We like going for something for him. The other would be my wife and children, wanting to see them through. Other than that, take me home. If you could catch one millisecond of a glance of the beauty and the joy and the life that awaits you when you step over into glory, if you could catch that for a millisecond, it would fracture your mind it would explode your heart. You're going to have to be supernaturally strengthened to endure it. You would be willing to die a thousand cruel deaths to see that second of a vision just one more time. So many good men, Christians, sincere men, do not think enough about heaven. They just don't. And one of the reasons why, do you want to know one of the reasons why? Because they don't understand the power of the gospel. Because they look in the mirror and they see their own failure. And they think, yeah, for someone like Spurgeon to go to heaven, yeah, I could see that, you know. Or, you know, a Hudson Taylor or a William Carey or a, a Luther or a Calvin. Yeah, I could see that. They, they're going to be received with joy. You know, it'll, it'll be. 
Can I share something with you? Jesus Christ did not shed his blood on the tree so that the first time you see him in heaven, he looks at you with a scowl on his face. Everyone gets to heaven for the same reason. The Apostle Paul, who suffered untold agonies for Christ and lived one of the most devoted lives ever, he gets into heaven for the same reason the thief on the cross gets into heaven and you get into heaven, because Jesus Christ shed his blood for sinners. I look in the mirror of God's word every day, And the only thing that sustains me is that truth. Jesus Christ shed his blood for sinners. He did it all. You see, there's only one hero in this story, and it's him. All of us have failed, but great glory awaits every one of us because our elder brother did not fail. The last Adam did not fail. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers. See, so many people, because you don't have an understanding of just how Christ took away your sin, and not only took away your sin, but made you righteous. You you don't have that understanding, so you're almost thinking, oh, I, I dread because, you know, the failure. Brothers, don't be that way. That's unbelief. God is going to be happier to see you than you're going to be to see God. He didn't do all this so that you could crawl through a back door. There's a a story that Spurgeon tells, and then I found out that he got it from another Puritan uh, years before him. There's this pastor that was really struggling with assurance looking back at all the failures in his life and everything else and he fell into what Bunyan calls a slew of despondency you know am I even one of the elect and one night he has a dream he's there it's on the side at the gates of glory off to the side and all of a sudden these trumpets start blowing and this He see these banners and this crowd of people marching towards heaven. And it's all the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob, Isaac. And he looks at them in all their glory as they march by. And he goes, I cannot enter in with them. Then after they pass, you know, comes comes David and Job. And the prophets, the great glory and great triumphant and music and joy and laughter. He looks and he goes, I can't go in with them. And then all of a sudden, here comes the apostles and the great Christians of the early church and the martyrs who shed their blood for the cause of Christ. He bows his head and he looks and he goes, "I, I can't go in with them. And then he sees the Christians down through the ages, the great missionaries and the great preachers, and he's in utter despair, and he looks. He goes, I can't go in with them. And then all of a sudden, the pitch of the music increases. 
the glory grows exponentially. The trumpets blow with a greater sound and here comes a glory like nothing he's ever seen. And it's Rahab and it's Manassas. It's the drunk and the thief. There's Zacchaeus coming in with a greater glory than all the others. And he goes, I can go in with them. You see, God did not do this to make salvation a contest so in the end we all get trophies depending on what we did. All of this is done for one reason, to demonstrate his power to save, not our power to be saved or our worthiness to be saved, but his power to save because of Christ, because of his blood. There is a great wide open door for all of us and all of us together. Now the wicked, carnal, unconverted churchman is going to hear that and go, that's great. I get to sin and, you know, I still get to go to heaven. This is wonderful. That's what the unconverted church member says. But the believing, saved church member that may be beat to death by the devil and the world goes, If it's this way, then I with greater force will long to be holy and long to be obedient and do better with the time that has been given to me. Oh, brothers, the hope of heaven, if you only knew how much you are loved. And this idea, you know, one day when I get into heaven, I'll be righteous. You won't be more righteous in heaven before God than you are right now. You need to understand that. Oh, yes. Practically, you will sin no more. Non posse peccati, you will not be able to sin. But with regard to righteousness, the moment you received Christ, He not only took away your sin and punishment by virtue of His death, but he clothed you in that perfect life that he lived. Do you see that? He's one greater than Joseph. Joseph didn't share that coat of many colors with his brethren. Christ shares his robe of righteousness with all his people. And he said, this one can come in. He is born in Zion. And he is clothed with my righteousness. Oh, I wish you, if you could just, just, just see the love that awaits, the joy, the lightness, the freedom. You would be so happy you would be so happy. And that's where Paul was. He says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. He had no fear about crossing. This is a man who also wrote Romans, 11, uh, Romans 7. 
O wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. This is a man who wrote this is of like nature with you. You've got to realize something that people forget. They just forget it. And it hurts them. You know, Charles Spurgeon, my opinion, the greatest preacher maybe who ever lived. Do you think God was on his throne wringing his hands going, oh, only if I could find a Charles Spurgeon. If only I could find, oh, there he is. No, Charles Spurgeon was Charles Spurgeon because of God's sovereign grace. God made a Charles Spurgeon. And without that grace, Charles Spurgeon would be nothing and less than nothing. Oh, brothers, we ought to be looking heavenward. Heavenward. Now, he says in 9, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. You know, there's a ten, there's a there's just a tinge of an echo of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, God's will be done. In heaven, God's will be done. And Paul is saying basically the same thing. My ambition, whether I'm on earth or I am in heaven, is to do the will of God, to be pleasing to God, to be pleasing to him. Do you know that's all you've got to be? You don't have to be successful. You don't have to have a big ministry. All you have to be is pleasing to him. To delight in him, knowing he delights in you, and setting yourself a course of wanting to simply be an obedient son. But look at this, ambition. Now, I could ask you, is it your ambition to be pleasing to him here on earth? And you may say, yes, it is, okay? Would, would the people who know you say that from just looking at the way you live, it's obvious that it's your ambition, your primary ambition in life is to be pleasing to God? Would people who don't know you very well but maybe work with you and see you from a distance, do they look and go, that guy's ambition? He has one, one primary ambition, and that is to be pleasing to this one he calls Lord. Would they see that in you? Would they? You know, well, in my heart of hearts, I don't care about your heart of hearts. I don't even know what that is. You know, let me just uh, show you something here. It's amazing things that he says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Why did he say that, your body? Well, to get around this idea of when you look at someone and they're living in sin, living in immorality, living in the world, and you question them, are you sure that you know the Lord? Don't you judge me. You can't see into my heart of hearts. I don't need to see in your heart of hearts because I can see what you're doing with your body. In your heart of hearts is your control center for your will, your emotions, and everything else. Don't tell me that you have this profound faith and love for Christ in your heart of hearts and somehow it doesn't communicate itself to the rest of your body. That's just a lie and it's a deception. 
Now, he has an ambition to do what? He has an ambition to be pleasing to Christ, to be pleasing to God. Now, I'm going to give you two motivations. One is the sun and one is the moon. One is a light and one is a lesser light, a greater light and a lesser light. And I want you to hold these before you. Um, Let's look at the lesser light, the moon, first. What is it that motivated Paul to be pleasing, to want to be pleasing, to have as his ambition to be pleasing to Christ? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That was one of Paul's motivations. Now, I cannot explain to you, nor have I been satisfied with the explanations of other men, how we hold these two things in attention. That I am completely and perfectly accepted in the beloved, and yet at the same time, I will stand before the judgment throne of Christ, and I will give an account, and I will be rewarded for things I have done and not done in the body. And I don't think necessarily we should hold him in attention. I think the idea is, is this judgment of me, the judgment of how I've responded to the talents that I've been given, is a real judgment. And yet it is always going to be in the context, this judgment is in the context of the immutable, perfect love of Christ for me. But never forget the judgment is real. Now, you say, well, what's the difference between you and the lost man? Well, the lost man is going to look up on that throne and he's going to see a judge. He's going to see a vengeful judge, he's going to see a judge that demands recompense. When the believer looks up there, he's going to see a father and a brother and a son who demands no recompense because it was all paid on Calvary. When Jesus said, it is finished, everything that had to be done for your perfect justification before God was accomplished. So this has nothing to do with love, has nothing to do with sonship, but it is a real judgment, and it motivated Paul. I will give an account. Exactly how that works, I do not know, but I know that it's true. I will give an account. Now, Spurgeon will have to give an account for the grace that was given to him, a magnificent, extraordinary grace. William Carey, Jim Elliot, I could just go down the list. But each of us, according to the grace that has been given us, according to the talents. I sometimes run in the circles with some theologians and preachers that their minds literally blow me away. I'm sitting there with all of these men that are so brilliant and so knowledgeable, and the only thing I can think is, well, I can skin a deer better than all of them. That's about it. But see, I'm not going to be judged according to what was given John MacArthur or Steve Lawson or Vody Bauckham or anybody else. I'm going to be judged for 
the grace given me, how did I respond? And, 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 and because of that, there could be a housewife who's hardly ever preached the gospel to anyone who will be far more pleasing to God on that day than I have been. Because according to her calling and according to the grace that was given to her, she showed extraordinary devotion to God. And she did that which was laid out for her to do. Do you see? So don't judge as men judge. Judge righteously. Sometimes I think that uh, COVID-19 was God's judgment on Bible conferences. <laughs> because you have all these, you know, I don't know what you call them, very well-known preachers preaching. And yet when I'm up there preaching, I'm like, sometimes I, I can spot guys that I know that no one knows their name and they pastor 75 people and they have forgotten more about God than I'll ever learn. And their piety is far more extraordinary than anything I could imagine for myself. Do you see? Don't judge like men judge. But know this, whether you're a Charles Spurgeon or you're a mechanic or a carpenter or a policeman or a fireman or a ditch digger or a gardener, what grace has been given to you? What opportunities have been given to you? How did you use them? What kind of steward have you been of the grace of God that has been given to you? That's your only question. So that was a motivation in Paul's life. But now I want to go to the greater motivation in Paul's life, an extraordinary motivation. And he says this, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, this was Paul's extraordinary motivation, and it is to be ours. It is to be the sun, not the moon. What most motivates us? He says in 14, the love of Christ controls us. Now, we need to get this genitive right here. It's extremely important. If you do not understand this part, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So many people, because of our tendency towards idolatry and lifting up men, they read this and go, for the love of Christ controls us. And they think Paul is talking about his love for Christ propels him to such extraordinary deeds. Oh, Paul loved Christ so much that it controlled him. If only I could love Christ like Paul loved Christ, then it would control me too. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying, my love for Jesus Christ controls me. No, it's the opposite. He's saying, Christ's love for me controls me. I don't care who you are. I don't care who someone else is. I don't care how great a preacher, how well known they are. Every one of us is mutable. Drastically so. Another word that might be more appropriate is we are fickle. And our hearts are strange and always changing. One day... We just seem to be on the heights in our love for Christ. And the next day, our hearts are dull. 
middle range the next day, high the next, down low the other. I mean, if, if my Christian life and ministry were dependent upon my extraordinary love for Christ, then my life would be like this. So my love is grossly mutable, changing, fickle. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I am controlled by Christ's infinite, immutable, unchanging love for me. I want to tell you something. There have been times when I wanted to leave the ministry. Just horrible battles. And there's only one thing that's kept me from going through the door and walking out of the building. It's the crucified, resurrected, and scarred Nazarene standing in the door. You can fail everybody. Everybody can fail you. The world can seem to fail you. The church can fail you. But there's one who will never fail you. There's one who will never give you reason for not following him. And that is Jesus Christ. Now here's what I want you to see. The more you understand how much Christ loves you, the more you will be controlled by that love and the more obedient and pleasing you will be. I'm sometimes known as a a hard preacher, sometimes offensive and, and all sorts of things. But when I'm preaching pastorally, do you know what my greatest goal is? My greatest goal is that God's people understand how much he loves them. That's my greatest goal. As a matter of fact, the most difficult thing you're ever going to have to do or attempt to do is to believe that God loves you as much as he says he does. It just doesn't seem right. Do you remember Peter when he's in the boat and they've been fishing all night and then the Lord says, throw your nets over and he says, we've been fishing all night, but I'll throw them over and then he throws them over and they're filled up with fish and he pulls the nets up and all these fish are coming down. And what does Peter do? He's like, he fought, he's like, he has just seen a miraculous manifestation of the glory of Christ And he's like, this is wrong. This is not right. You shouldn't let a man like me see something like this. It's it's just not right. It's, It's not right. That will be your attitude as you grow in the love your understanding of the love of Christ for you. You guys, come on. Come on. You bunch of... You're about as rough around the edges as they come. You fail. 
I mean, sometimes you can't even do the simplest things. Sometimes you can't even read your Bible. Your prayers sometimes are just they're pitiful. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know me. You act like an idiot sometimes with your wife. Because you basically are an idiot. <laughs> Except for the big guy back there that looks like he can bench press a semi-truck. You're okay. <laughs> I'm just determining who I can handle and who I can't. <laughs> Look, it, guys... It's just not right for him to be this good. You look at yourself in the mirror of God's word. You see everything. So There's so much of us that's wrong and fickle and broken. And if you're sitting there right now going, well, I don't know who he's talking about, then you got a serious problem. Even the most godly men are just men, sinners saved by grace. And so you're looking at, hold it, the God who is holy, 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 loves me with an unquenchable love. And it's not just this love of duty. He's actually going to be delighted when you pass over. When you got saved, angels rejoiced in his presence, which means the idea is there, it's not so much, everybody talks about the angels. The idea is that God is rejoicing. That's what he's saying. The moment you were converted, God rejoiced. The first time you lay eyes on glory, his glory, he will rejoice. And you look in the word of God and you go, no, that's just not right. There's got to be a purgatory. There's got to be something. Well, there was something. It's called Calvary. It's called Calvary. It really was finished. He really did it all. That's why he's the hero. That's why he is the hero. And there's only one hero. There will always only be one hero. There's only one true servant of Yahweh, our elder brother, who did everything. That's why those who march to glory do not have one shred of self-righteousness. Their righteousness is Yahweh. It is the Son. That is their righteousness. And he really loves you like that. And that is one of the most amazing truths you will find in Scripture. I want to look for a moment. I want to read you something. Just mark my place. Listen to this. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Not into the shallow pond. Not into the river where it might be stirred up and brought back to the surface. No, the very depths of the sea. 
Now, this has been sung in so many modern choruses. You know, he, he treads our sin under his foot. He throws our sin into the sea. And they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Do you honestly think this text is saying that God did away with our sin by doing this? He took our iniquities off of us. He threw them on the ground and he stomped them. Or he took our sin, all our sin, past, present, and future, took it off of us, rolled it up into a ball, and threw it into the sea. You think that's how he did it? That's not what this text is talking about. Do you want to know what this text is talking about? Do you know why he can love you the way he does? Do you know why he will rejoice when you cross over? Do you know why he can look at you even now and love you with an indisputable love? Because he... He took that sin off of you and he put it on his son and he crushed his son under his foot. He took that sin off of you and he put it on his son and then he hurled his son into the sea of his wrath. Do you remember Jonah? Do you remember them crossing the sea, the disciples with Jesus? Do you not see that it's, it's basically history repeating itself, but with a different man this time? When Jesus got in that boat with those disciples and he went to sleep inside the boat, Jonah got in a boat, didn't he? And he went to sleep inside the boat. When Jesus is in that boat and he's asleep and these seamen, these are fishermen, all of a sudden, a storm comes up that they know this is not a natural storm. We can handle a natural storm. This is not a natural storm. Do you know the first thing that probably popped into their head? The Pharisees and the Sadducees may be right. The man who's sleeping in this boat right now is a Jonah, a disobedient prophet. Oh no, we're going to die. We're going to die. I mean, it's the exact same thing. That's why you should study the Old Testament. But boy, was there a change of mind when they woke him up, just like they woke up Jonah. And he walks out there and goes, yeah, just get quiet. And then they went from, this is a disobedient prophet to, well, Psalm says that only God can do that. And then later on, on Calvary, Jonah was thrown into the sea for his own sin in the sea of God's wrath and swallowed up by a fish. Jesus, our Savior, our leader, our King, he, on Calvary, threw himself off the boat into the wrath of God and was swallowed up by the tomb, by death itself. And three days later, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. You see, that's why this open door has been given to you. 
This is why you're accepted in him. That's why you'll rejoice. And see, if you can live in that, how can someone be courageous? How can someone be strong? How can someone be joyful as they're passing through this evil fallen world that is an enemy if they think I'm going to pass through this world and suffer the wrath of this world and the frowns of this age and everything and then I'm going to die and the first thing I'm going to see is another frown. How can you be courageous here? It's impossible. You say, well, you don't know who I am. And I go, well, you don't know who Jesus is. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what he's done, apparently. Now, again, the lost carnal church member will hear this and go, oh, this is wonderful. Let us sin that grace may abound. But the broken true convert says, if it is this way, then I think I need to run to the pastors. I need to, I, I just want to be more holy. You see, if you, let's say you have two wives and both of them serve their husbands day and night. But one is just nervous and, and frightened and, and just unsettled all the time. And the other is happy and carefree, joyful. What's the difference? This woman serves her husband day and night so that he will love her. This woman serves her husband day and night because he does love her. You see, one time, basically in the law, in Deuteronomy, the question comes up, it's like, it's, it's a tautology. It's, it's really strange. Basically, the idea is Israel is kind of looking at God and going, why, did you, why do you love us? And his answer, oh, okay. I, love, I loved you because I loved you. That's what it says. I loved you because I loved you. What is he saying? I am love. I made the sovereign decision, not based on you, your character, or your deeds, but based on me and my character, I have determined to love you with an eternal love. I loved you before the foundation of the world. I will love you at the world's end and through countless eternities because I have decided to love you. I can live with that. I can live joyfully with that. He talks about courage twice. Remember that guy I told you about that went in the jungle with me a few times? Scared of his own shadow? I mean, he thought every creature in the world was going to get him at night. I mean, I have never seen a person more afraid. But he went into the jungle because Christ loved him. Because Christ loved him, he loved Christ. Because Christ loved those people, he loved those people. And he never, you know, he's never going to win the Indiana Jones Award.
but for the sake of the love of Christ. You see, that's what it's, it's all about. It's you understanding how much he loves you. If I were to sit down with most of you, you characters, if I were to sit down with you and just talk, and I said, all right, shoot straight, look me in the eye, how much you read in the Bible every day? You'd hee-haw around, and finally, I'd get it out of you that you're not reading the Scriptures as you ought to be. In some cases, some of you. I talk about prayer. You say, well, I'm struggling. Yeah. Fellowship with other godly men. Yeah, I'm kind of neglectful in that at times. Okay. Tell me about... Tell me about that first moment when you when you leave this body and you're in the presence of the Lord. What do you think about that? Well, I think I'm probably going to pretty much have my tail tucked between my legs. I, uh, I'm, uh, I just wish I was more. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I wish you were more. I wish I was more. There's one thing I don't wish about. What's that? I don't wish that he was more because he is more. I don't want you beaten down. One of the things, I, when I was a pastor in Peru, it was during the war, and I mean, it was, it was bad. There were dead bodies everywhere and guns going off and <laughs> bazookas and bombs and people beat down. Poverty have to stand in line for days, not days, hours just to get a bag of rice. People would walk into that church on Sunday morning and they were beat to death. My primary obligation was to show them how much God loved them. To show them what Christ did for them. And that would strengthen them. I want you to be holy. I want you to be I want you to be everything I want to be. Everything scripture wants us to be. But I know the thing that holds me together and keeps me on course is in somewhat of an understanding about how much God loves me in Christ. That'll enable you to walk in this world. That. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these men, Lord. Thank you. I pray, dear God, so many words, so many conferences. Sometimes it just seems, well, Lord, it is useless apart from your power. Please, dear God, please do a work in the hearts of all of us that we would see the love of God in Christ and that that would uh, cause us to have as our singular ambition to be pleasing to you. Lord, I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.